Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. Look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. As you can see from the Christmas tree behind me, uh, as we wind down in the book of Revelation, we are actually appropriately uh, in the season of Advent, uh, the season in which historically the church has prepared herself to celebrate both the past first coming of Christ in his incarnation and also his future second coming one day when he returns to rule. And that is where we find ourselves today in the book of Revelation. As we've started to accelerate now towards the end of the book, what we have is the return of the king in Revelation chapter 20, where much like we see in the the third part of the Lord of the Rings book uh, by the same name, the return of the king, uh, that the king who has returned is not a, a new person, but someone we've already met, but who is now being revealed as the king. And so last week in Revelation chapter 19, we met the rider on the white horse. And today we discover that this rider is actually the true and rightful king who has come to take his throne. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20 today, and I encourage you to follow along if you have a Bible in front of you as I read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, 
and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this is perhaps the most controversial chapter in the entire book. And really, how one interprets this chapter probably dictates how they interpret the rest of the book and and really how they interpret much of the prophecy that we find in Scripture, both Old Testament and New. Because what we find here in Revelation 20, of course, is this reference to a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, what is often referred to as the Millennial Kingdom. And there have been various ways throughout church history about how to interpret this thousand-year reign of Christ. And so you have uh, premillennial, which is the view that Christ returns and then establishes a literal thousand-year reign on earth. Uh, and the premillennial position has two different branches. It has uh, the dispensational premillennialism, which is relatively recent in history. Uh, it's probably the most famous for many American evangelicals because it spawned the Left Behind series. Uh, But then there's also historical premillennialism, which is different and that doesn't hold to the dispensational uh, paradigm or the framework uh, that the Left Behind series and and, uh, and other things like that hold to. And so the historical premillennial position does believe that Christ returns and then rules literally on earth for a period of time, whether it's a thousand years or, or whether the thousand years is not, is not literal, but he does literally reign on earth. Uh, but they don't, uh, but they view that as, as being at the end of most of what's written in the book. And so this is the position that I hold uh, as I've gone through the book. You may have noticed the first couple chapters I viewed as being past for most of church history. These last few chapters are future for most of church history. Uh, But then the bulk of the book is really present for every uh, age of the church. Every generation in the church is living those middle chapters in some way, shape, or form. And so we are living through the tribulation period now as we go through life in these end times between the first coming and second coming. And that tribulation will end when Christ comes back to rule. And then there's the amillennial position. Uh, which is that the millennial kingdom is happening now within the church age and that Christ is reigning through his church. And then there's the post-millennial position, which has fallen out of favor in the last hundred years or so, which is that the church actually uh, brings about the return of Christ, that the church inaugurates the millennial kingdom and Christ returns at the end of it. And that's about all I'm going to say about those positions because our point all throughout this book has been finding that certain comfort in uncertain times. And I know for the American church, we often take these different views of the end times, these different eschatological positions, and make them first-order doctrines, but really they're not first-order doctrines. And so uh, we shouldn't have trouble fellowshipping, we shouldn't have trouble considering as brothers and sisters those who hold various positions. And so, as I said, I hold to a historic premillennialism, but I can 
see the biblical arguments for the other viewpoints. And I gladly fellowship with believers who hold the other viewpoints. And so we're not really going to discuss the, the millennial viewpoints at all as we go through Revelation chapter 20. Because there is comfort that we can find that no matter how we interpret the millennial kingdom, there are certain things that this chapter tells us will happen that should be a comfort to us as we live in these end times. And so I hope you didn't turn in looking for me to to teach all those various doctrinal points because we're not going to do that here today. That's not what we're here for. And there are lots of good resources you can go look up on your own for that. Instead, we're going to look at four events that this chapter describes that should be a comfort to us as we live in these end times that point us forward, whatever our millennial viewpoint, to the day when Christ does return and what we can expect as we live in these uncertain times, as we live in this sinful and sin-scarred world. And the first thing that we see that should be a comfort for us is that Satan will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. And really, uh, I I put all these points in the future tense because they're pushing us to a future and final fulfillment. But it's really not even so much that Satan will be defeated. Uh, Although he will be, we do encounter uh, his final defeat here in this chapter. But really, we see that Satan has already been defeated. Uh, Because we see this defeat of Satan happen in two parts here in chapter 20. Uh, And the first is in the first three verses when an angel comes down from heaven holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. And this is kind of the bookend. Uh, We saw earlier in the book that this angel came down and opened the abyss and allowed uh, the the dragon and the beast, or allowed the the, the beast to come out of the abyss. And now he's putting them back into the abyss. And so really, even the activity that we see during this uh, church age of Satan is really only activity that he's allowed to have. Uh, He may seem very powerful, but he's not. He may seem like he has control, but he doesn't. He may seem to be uh, 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 this powerful being who rivals God, but he's not. That's the the, what we see in Scripture time and time again that culminates here in the book of Revelation is that Satan is not on God's level, but is completely subordinate to him. And so he has been allowed to be the God of this age for a time. But the time is coming when he will be seized and bound, when God will limit his activity, where he will no longer be able to deceive the nations. But then further along, we see after uh, Christ reigns and he's released for that short time and he does deceive the nations again and prepares Gog and Magog for battle. And we're not going to get into uh, 
what Gog and Magog may symbolize any more than we tried to identify who the Antichrist might be. Uh, possibilities have changed with every age of the church because the greatest threat that the church has seen has changed in every age of the church. And so Martin Luther believed it was the Turks. Uh, back when I was a young believer in the, uh, or growing up in the 80s, a young believer in the 90s, it was the Soviet Union that people thought was Gog and Magog. It changes uh, based on who the church sees as the greatest threat. But he gathers up the nations and prepares them for battle. Then fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil is this time not bound in the abyss for a time, but he is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, Satan will be defeated. That's the comfort that Revelation 20 gives us, that we, we have to be careful not to miss as we argue and debate over what the millennium means and which symbols we should take literally and, and what the correlations might be in our own day. We can't miss the fact that the hope, the comfort that this chapter gives us is that Satan will be defeated. That the one who stands behind so much of the sin and the suffering that we see in the world. His time is running short. And one day he will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. He is not on par with God. He is completely subservient to him. And the activity that we see has been allowed by God for a time. But that time is short and it is quickly coming to an end and God will put a quick and sudden stop to it. And so in the midst of our uncertain times, in the midst of the sin and the suffering that we experience in this world, we are comforted that the source of that sin and suffering, that the enemy, that the dragon, the devil and Satan will be defeated, that he has already been defeated at the cross. His time is coming short. And one day he will be fully and finally defeated. But secondly, we see not only that Satan will be defeated, but also that the Savior will reign. The Savior will reign. In verses 4 through 6, we see the martyrs come back to life, be resurrected those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not accepted the mark of the beast on their foreheads or their hands. Uh, They come back to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. They they come to life and they take up their position uh, with their older brother, Jesus, who has come back to rule. And this is the thing that we often forget, although it seems so obvious. I mean, after all, we call it the millennial kingdom. But in all of our debates about the millennial kingdom, we kind of forget about the king. And we, we make it about all these more minor things. We make it about who's interpreting the symbols the right way. And we forget what this passage is actually supposed to point us towards. Because Whether you see the millennial kingdom as a future reign with Christ for a thousand years or for another amount of time, whether you see it as something that is happening now as uh, Christ through the Spirit and the church exerts his authority 
over the world during the church age, or whether you see it as something that the church will eventually bring about, uh, whichever view of the kingdom you hold, the millennial kingdom in all of those views is a temporary thing. It's a temporary thing that points forward to what we'll see in the next couple chapters of Christ actually now ruling for eternity on a new heaven and a new earth. What we see in verses 4 through 6 is meant to whet our appetite for what is still yet to come. And so we must not read chapter 20 uh, just to get those theological points, uh, just to make sure that we are uh, crossing off all the, the boxes, getting our symbols correct, identifying who Gog and Magog are, identifying whether the thousand years is literal, identifying where this comes in chronological order and what we've seen over the last couple chapters, and miss the point of the chapter, which is that the king is coming, and the king is going to reign on earth. Uh, initially for this kind of temporary millennial kingdom, whenever that takes place. But eventually, as we'll see in the next two chapters, he will reign fully and finally in a new heaven and a new earth. And so while it might seem very simple, while it might seem very obvious, sometimes we need to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees. And especially in a season like we're in, where we're just coming out off of a tumultuous presidential election season, where the COVID-19 pandemic has shown how little control we actually have over our lives and in our country, where we do live in such uncertain times where everything around us has been so destabilized. We must not read Revelation or Revelation chapter 20 merely to argue with our brother who believes differently, or really at all. And miss the fact that the king is coming and he will exert perfect rule and he will set all things right. And not only will he rule, but those of us who are believers will rule with him. And so our comfort is not just that Satan will be defeated. It's that the, that the Savior will reign, that Jesus is coming and he will exert his rule on earth and put all things right. And so Satan will be defeated. The Savior will reign. Thirdly, the saints will be vindicated. The saints will be vindicated. This is what we see not merely in the fact that uh, the saints will reign with Christ during this millennial kingdom, that those who had uh, been martyred will be raised to life to reign with, with Christ. But we also see it with the satanic rebellion that happens at the end of the kingdom. Because what happens is that you have this time period, whenever it takes place, where uh, Christ is ruling with his church, where the, uh, the devil has been uh, bound and is no longer active, uh, but then after this period, even this period of, of Christ's reign and Satan's released, and he's immediately able to deceive the nations again. The nations immediately fall back in line with the God of this age. The only ones who don't are those who had not been deceived at first. And so what you see is almost uh, this idea that at the end of the millennial kingdom, 
there will be one full and final thing that shows the justice of what is to come. That those who do not believe will have no excuse for not believing because even with Satan bound, when he's then released, they will immediately be deceived. While those who stayed true, even in persecution previously and now in the millennial kingdom, will still stay true once Satan is released again. And so the saints are vindicated that this idea of them having pursued the way of the cross, that they now come to reign with Christ and then they stay loyal to Christ when Satan is released. Meanwhile, those who followed the way of the beast, who sided with the empire, who sided with the state against the lamb and against the way of the cross, even after having been ruled by the lamb, still forsake him to go back to the beast, still forsake the savior to go back to Satan. And so you see the church vindicated and and God's justice shown to be truly just as it's not just that Satan will be defeated and not just that the Savior will reign, but that the saints will be vindicated, that their enemies will be shown to be truly enemies and be defeated along with the God that they have worshipped. And so we saw first that, the Satan will, that Satan will be defeated, secondly, that the Savior will reign, third, that the saints will be vindicated And last, but of course not least, sin will be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with. The chapter ends with what's called the great throne judgment in verses 11 through 15. Uh, Because John sees a great white throne and one seated on it, and heaven and earth fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And then he goes on in verses 12 to 15 to describe judgment before that throne. And it's possible that this is all one judgment, a judgment of unbelievers. Uh, But it's also possible that what we see here is really two judgments. That you have first the judgment of believers and then second the judgment of unbelievers. Because in verse 12, John sees the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And so uh, there's a possibility that in verse 12 here what we see is the judgment of believers that believers come before the throne and they are their names are found in the book of life and so they do not experience a judgment for sin because Christ has taken on that judgment on the cross. And so their judgment is not on the basis of their works to determine whether they are going to heaven or hell, to determine whether they are saved or the condemned, uh, but rather having their names found in the book of life, they pass on to life, and now they are judged in accordance with their works, uh, similar to what we see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, where we pass through fire and uh, the things that we've done in the flesh are burned off and the things that we've done in the spirit remain. And so we are the ones who can truly be judged according to our works because we're not judged for salvation or condemnation because that has been determined at the cross and our names have been found in the book of life. But then in verse 13 through 15, we most certainly see judgment of unbelievers. 
Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. The sea and Hades are both uh, these depictions of evil. And so these are most certainly unbelievers, uh, not necessarily literally people who either were buried at sea or buried in the land, uh, but people who had died and been constrained to a place of evil because they were evil. And they are judged according to their works. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the presence of the book of life is what reminds us that what is being dealt with here is sin. Because we are, as we've seen in these last few chapters, there's only two types of people. There's those who... Uh, are the people of the Lamb, who are part of the Lamb's bride, who follow in his footsteps along the way of the cross. And then there are those who belong to the beast, who are part of the beast's harlot, who are joined with the beast, uh, and who follow the way of might and violence against those that belong to the Lamb. And here we see in the great white throne judgment that these people are uh, either in the book of life, if they belong to the lamb or they are not in the book of life, if they belong to the beast. And so chapter 20 really does push us towards uh, self-examination of which group of people we belong to. Because if we do believe in Jesus Christ, if we have taken on what he's done on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension for ourselves, if we have in faith, put our trust in him, that our name is in the book of life. And we pass through this judgment. We are not thrown into the lake of fire, not because our sin doesn't need to be dealt with, not because we're such good people and our works are so great that God just welcomes us into heaven, but because our sin has already been dealt with on the cross. And as we've said this whole time going through the book of Revelation, the cross is the focal point of this book. And we're reminded of it with the great white throne judgment. We are in the book of life if we have sided with the cross. If we have in faith believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And so our sin has been dealt with. And that is what allows us to pass through death into life. Is that our sin has been already dealt with on the cross. But if we have not by faith put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we are not part of the Lamb's bride, if we do not follow in his way, then when we stand before the judgment seat of God and we are the, the books of our lives are opened and, and our works are on display to be seen and to judged, to be judged, well, none of us have works that warrant entrance into heaven. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's not that some people are good enough to get into heaven and some people are so bad that they deserve hell, but that we all are bad enough to deserve hell. None of us are deserving of heaven. To be judged according to our works will always lead to being cast into the lake of fire. Our only hope is to have our name written in the book of life, to have our name written in the Lamb's book of life. Because we have trusted not in our own works, but in his finished and perfect work. And so the 
two sources of comfort for those of us who are in the book of life here in this great white throne judgment as we live in this world are that our names are written in the book of life. So our sin has been dealt with. But not only has our sin been dealt with, uh, not only has the penalty been paid on the cross, but now sin has been dealt with. By the time we get to the great white throne judgment, we have been freed from the penalty of our sin. We have been freed from the power of our sin, and now we are going to be fully and finally freed from the presence of our sin. That sin and all those who are still in their sin are cast into the lake of fire, and sin will finally be no more. And it is not a coincidence that it is only when sin has fully and finally been thrown into the lake of fire, when uh, the dragon, Satan, when death and Hades, when they have been thrown into the lake of fire, it is only then that we see, as we'll see next time, the bride displayed in all of her glory because sin has fully and finally been dealt with. And so, brothers and sisters, wherever you find yourself as you watch this, uh, whatever you're struggling with, suffering with, whatever sin uh, is plaguing you, uh, whatever heartache, whatever struggles, uh, whether it's due to the COVID-19 pandemic or something totally different because you're watching this in the future, whatever it is that we're dealing with, what Revelation comforts us with is not that there's theology arguments that we can win at, that we can uh, learn about and defeat people in debates. But what it comforts us with is that our enemy will be defeated. Our Savior will reign, that we will be vindicated, and that our sin will fully and finally be dealt with. Not just the penalty of it, but the power of it, and even the presence of it. That all of it will be eradicated from God's creation. And as we'll see in the next two chapters, He will indeed make all things new. And He will once again be able to look at His creation, including His bride, including man and woman in the garden and say, it is good. Thank you for joining us as we've looked at Revelation chapter 20 and come back next time as we look at the penultimate chapter of the book, Revelation chapter 21.